This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt, and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for? Or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Kevin Horton of K2 Architects who are based in Liverpool, UK. I'm actually recording this on location at K2's offices. Kevin and I went to university together for our first degree. While I joined the dark side and went into nuclear, Kevin set up his own practice with Mark Davis and K2 was born. In all seriousness, Kevin is a great architect and K2 have existed in the city centre of Liverpool for 14 years, designing many arts-based projects, education, community facilities, housing, retail, and they also win competitions. K2 are now on their way to getting B Corp certified in the next 6 to 12 months with a view to be employee-owned over the next five years. Firstly, welcome to the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today and how was Japan? Oh, it's all right, Jason. Thank you very much. Japan was interesting. It's like, it's, um, what's the best way of putting it? It's on, I know it's on a lot of people's bucket lists. It wouldn't be on mine going there. Really? I enjoyed it, yes, but I found it upside down. It's everything that the UK is on its head. So we're quite individualistic. We're quite uh, unique in our thinking and we all want to stand out from each other. We all want to do our own thing. Whereas in Japan, everyone wants to just get along with each other and they all want to fit in with each other. And it's really interesting because that creates a completely different dynamic. I kind of like the UK a bit more. That's just me. You know, I like the kind of messy chaoticness of the UK. (laughs) But I must admit, I did enjoy the the neat sense of order that Japan has. So I was on a train, right? This, is, this sums it up completely. On a bullet train, going into a station, I can't remember where it was, but um, we, were, we were sort of sitting forward, me and Heather were sitting forward in the carriage, everyone's sitting forward, and then gets an announcement on the, uh, on the 
Tanoi. It's, it's in English, right? Yeah. So we said, oh, we're coming into the station now and we're facing forward, but we're leaving the station going backwards. So if you could all turn your chairs around, that'd be lovely. Thank you. And you sort of think, what? I'm not going to do that because you're British. You know, you do that. I can't be bothered. I'm quite happy going backwards on the train. Not a chance, right? We all had to literally, as soon as the train stopped, everyone stood up. Everyone stood up and everyone turned the chairs around and I couldn't help it. We all had to do it. Otherwise, we'd have been the only people doing it and we would look like idiots. So we all turned our chairs around, faced the other way around and sat down, right? And then nobody said a word. <laughs> That's Japan. It's just so ordered and organised. It's unbelievable. Could I live in that sense of order? I'm not sure. I don't think I could as I need well. Some chaos. <laughs> you studied architecture uh, first at Huddersfield and then at De Montfort University. Yeah. Um, did those universities you feel fully prepare yourself for practicing architecture? Interesting. Um, it's hard to say with Huddersfield, to be fair, because I'd sort of started working in practice when I was 16. So by the time I got to university, when I was about 18, 19, I got three years of experience under my belt. I'd done a BTEC. And as I, I often say to people, I felt like, and I don't know how you feel about this, Jason, but I felt the first two years was almost, a lot of it was just rehashing the BTEC. It was. Almost changing architects from being academic A-level students into vocational kind of, you know, degree students. But to do that, they had to take them through the BTEC kind of thing. So all these things, all these exams that we used to have to do, sort of like, you know, when you go into the exam and they go, all right, draw a sill detail or something like that. I could do it with my eyes closed. I've been doing it for three or four years anyway. So that didn't intimidate me. Yeah. And I was also a natural artist, so I did not feel like I was struggled at Huddersfield but then I went to De Montfort and that was a different story so they were a lot more pushy I don't feel like I was pushed at, pushed at my first degrees you know and I don't think I was prepared to be pushed to be fair either I was enjoying myself too much yeah I didn't see I don't remember seeing much of you in no. the first two years Kevin no it was I was definitely taking more interest in people at that time <laughs> in the course um, but uh, yeah so uh, I went to, went to De Montfort and uh, one of the things that attracted me to De Montfort at the time was that 50% of their students went to work for people like Grimshaws and Fosters and stuff like that and I thought wow this is okay right I'll give this a go um, and I think the first project I did I got a D <laughs> and I thought oh hang on I've got to pull my way here and I slowly worked my way up through the ranks over the next few years but it was good it was really good it was really challenging and I was I was lucky because my tutor was a chap called uh, Richard Weston, who was a bit of like the world authority on El Baralto and all those sort of people. So I got to meet some really inspiring people. Like um, we had a chap who was Jorn Utsen's right-hand man, came and did some tutoring for us and stuff like that. So we got some really, really interesting and perhaps a bit more diverse kind of learning. And it really challenged yeah. me to think about, harder about what architecture was about. And, you know, what I could achieve with architecture as well. Which I think it's the same for anybody who does that once they get into their postgrad. So it's not, not being critical of Huddersfield. I think I was just more interested in the lifestyle, Jason, the lifestyle. The lifestyle. <laughs> as most you, students You and me both, yeah. yeah. I, went, I went off to Leeds, as you know, and yeah. uh, I, I probably faced uh, similar challenges, to be honest. It was definitely a, a big change. I don't know if it was the university itself or just that step up into you know into grad dip 
um, it was uh, definitely quite tough. And you, when you left there, I know you might have worked at a number of practices, but you did spend five and a half years at BDP. Mm. I think it's a rite of passage for many young architects in, in the UK, you know, but I just want to know, what did you learn from that experience of working in a big practice? Hmm, interesting. So I, I, when I left uni, you're right, I worked for a lot of different types of practices. So my year out, I did work for a one-man band in Liverpool. And I was basically doing ethyl Austin fit-outs for a year, which was, made me realise that was not my place in life kind of thing. Um, but I definitely saw a lot of the world, got a lot of independence, there's no place to hide in a small business. So you kind of learn a lot, a lot quickly and fast. And then I kind of went through a sort of stepped approach where I kept on going to bit slightly bigger and bigger practices over the next few years. And eventually, obviously, ended up at BDP. Um, so I kind of saw it from all different kind of levels, if you like. Yeah. What BDP, what was exciting about that was I was actually employed to work on the Liverpool One project and that was a complete revelation to me because what BDP teaches you first of all is confidence right you realize that everything is scalable so you know everything I was doing in that one-man band practice I was pretty much doing at BDP but just all the projects were bigger so it's getting all the basic skills right and once you've got those you're fine you know you can literally work anywhere I think and so I was sort of I was meeting but I suppose the most exciting bit was that was architects from all over the world were coming and competing for the prize of working on one of the projects in Liverpool and they used to come to our small office and it was no bigger than the one you're in now so it was about sort of you know 20 people in our office and we had a big studio at the back and Raphael Vanoli came over um, we had Piers Goth we had uh, allies and Morris and they're just three I can just think of off the top of my head that just roll off Caesar Pele were over from Boston you know, and so you got lots of experience of watching different, some of the, well, people like Raphael Vanoli, you know, you're watching some of the best in the world present. Yeah. And, and again, all I saw was them, they were great presenters, great showmen, always great showmen, um, great salespeople, I would say. But they all had the same approach, they all took the same logical approach to the work that you would do for an Ethel Austin shop fit, basically. You know, they were just... I love what you said there, great salespeople, because that is something that seems to be um, not talked about at university, you know, being great at sales. Mm. You have to be, don't you, to keep that work coming in. God, yeah, you have to be, you can be the best technician in the world at your job, um, but if you can't sell your skills, you're nothing, are you? You're never going to make a living out of it, so. So, yeah, you have to learn to be... I think that's important about architecture that a lot of people forget. It's it's a humanity, It's, it's... about taking an interest in people and caring about people and stuff like that. And actually when you do that, you actually build quite strong relationships with people around you and build trust. And then that's how you attract working basically, I think, you know, so you, it's easy to say that you sound like a salesman, you sound like a snake oil salesman, but there's people you, you, you can't do that in architecture. You've got to be trusted to be able to deliver that product. So that takes a bit more time than, you know, so probably being a bit simplistic saying sales but yeah right you left BDP and you set up your practice and you set up K2 you seem to be a small practice that delivers every building type but it's still a small practice how do you walk this type rope of having the resources to pull off fairly big projects but also still times well you still devote time to doing competitions as well 
Interesting. Um, so, as I said, I mean, you know, obviously it's about getting the basics right. And I think it's also, we've, we've definitely steered away over the years, particularly more recently, from saying we're, we're sector-driven. I don't believe in sectors. Um, so we don't say, you know, it was, we go through a period when people would say, oh, you're education architects, do a lot of, do a lot of schools, therefore you're education, therefore you can't do a culture building or whatever. So we kind of stepped away from that and we rethought, well, actually, what is it architects do? And we actually, we're humanists, we hold a mirror up to society and reflect back their needs, basically. You know, we, we, we are kind of, that's our role. And so we decided what, what interested us more. We don't, what do we actually like doing? We don't like particularly in this, this practice, most people are not really that keen on doing housing or sort of large kind of uh, institutional projects and stuff like that. They want challenges, they want a bit of diversity and they want challenge in their work. So we looked at where does our, those skill sets fit in best? And actually there's an opportunity, particularly over the last few years, where um, actually we can start to look at addressing the challenges of what we call social infrastructure in our towns and cities in the north. So all, of the, all the conversations about the high street declining, about our sort of public services being underfunded, all those kind of things, how do we address those challenges? And we've decided that if we took a grassroots approach to each individual town and kind of helped, you know, to understand that town and build that sort of consensus up from the grassroots upwards, we can actually create some really interesting buildings and they don't have to, they don't have to just address education or healthcare, they have lots of different layers to them. So for example, really, really good example now. Actually, it's, before I do the example of the building, I'll give you an example of the town. I wrote a piece about my hometown, Southport, in the uh, place northwest, which is like a local kind of um, news portal around here. And it was just asking about, you know, what would you do for your town? You know, and there was a lot of people at the time complaining about, you know, oh, their town's collapsing or it's, you know, being underfunded by the government and not, you know, things weren't working the way they should and all the shops were leaving. And I sort of said, well, look at Southport, for example, which is really, really struggling at, a le at one level, at a social economic level. It's got uh, so many empty properties at the moment on the high street. It's a beautiful town, a beautiful Victorian seaside town. And my piece would say, well, let's look at what reason Southport was created in the first place. It was a town that the Victorians built deliberately for health and well-being. You know, it was the rich who kind of built it and they built this place that they could go to by the sea where they could regenerate themselves after, you know, working in the mills or something in Lancashire yeah. or whatever and unhealthy sort of environments that we had in those days. And they went there and they rejuvenated and so they built this social infrastructure around them of like, you know, theatres and promenades and piers. And, and the, but the, fundamentally it was all about, at the core of it was health and well-being. So I said, that's what Southport should do. It should play to its strength, which is it's a town for health and well-being, and build its ideas around that if it wants to regenerate itself, which has since gone on to stimulate quite a lot of interesting conversations. It's unlocked, I think, the biggest town deal uh, award in the in the UK after Blackpool, I think. So, you know, that same conversation was picked up by local authority. They've run with it, and they're kind of like unlocking new ideas out of it. They're building a new conferencing event centre there, which is designed to attract back a kind of uh, that sort of the old kind of party political kind of like events that used to go on on there. So, but down in the other end of the borough in uh, Bootle, 
There was a 19, oh, 1970s shopping centre that the council bought for £35 million. Pounds. And huge political hot potato. You know, the kind of... It's, people say, well, why are you buying a shopping centre for 30, £35 million pounds or whatever, when you are effectively, you know, it's the death of the high street and people are moving out and the place is empty and there's no one in it. And they don't really have a choice because if they didn't buy it, it would just sit there and rot in a fund somewhere and then people would complain even more. So we've been looking at how can we actually regenerate that place. Right. So loads of people came along and said, like, well, let's knock it down, start again. You know, it's a nice glitzy, ho- you know, hotels and great office space or whatever. And lo- yeah, the usual stuff, and none of it works, and nobody identifies with it, and nobody sort of sees, takes it very seriously, because it's a most, it's one of the most deprived parts of Europe. People, so it's kind of like, well, who's going to come and stay in a hotel? Who's going to sit? Who's going to do great office space around here? Yeah. So we sort of said actually keep the shopping centre because it's quite nice that brutalism is quite cool all right there's a few 80s bits and bobs that have kind of been plugged in here and there we'll clear them out we'll strip it back to its original form when it was quite glamorous still a quite glamorous kind of aspirational place and then we'll kind of start talking to like local colleges and healthcare providers and the independents and the market and all those people who actually form the core of bootles town centre community and how can we sort of bring this back into a proper town centre again and build what um, basically um, build local businesses up from the grassroots again Mm. rather than what we have done for the last 30 years which is actually abdicate responsibility for our town centres to the corporates and stuff like that now they've gone it's really back to the towns themselves to take responsibility and actually turn them around themselves not look for somebody else to come up with the answers and that's what we're doing right now and it's a really exciting project and I think it's just been nominated in uh, local property awards for a future ambition award kind of thing so so really forward it's not forward thinking stuff it's re- repurposing tech back and giving them back to their communities and that's where I think our strong USP is at the moment it's dealing with those challenges so that's quite good that's wonderful it's yeah. great to do it because you're from there as well you've now been running K2 as a director with your fellow architect director Mark for 14 Too years <laughs> <laughs> and can I, can you tell me about some of the challenges your business has faced over these years from cash flow winning work staff retention mm. so there's been three versions of K2 if you like over the right. years um, so and I've got this I've got this idea that businesses can be categorized you know in architecture you've got it's like taking that you know that time quality cost triangle that everyone talks about where you know if it's all about time and cost then quality has to go out the window and you know we always talk about those on projects and stuff like that you know it's it's a struggle about where does the architect fit in well I think businesses actually fit into that as well and I think you know when we started out we were a cost-based practice and by that I mean there was me and Mark and we were on our own and we were quite experienced and quite skilled we'd just come from BDP and we'd just been shortlisted for the Sterling Prize and all this kind of thing so you know people were actually uh, coming to us with work because we were basically cheap you know we weren't BDP we were kind of a cheaper alternative to do quick and easy jobs for them that you know for half the price and stuff like that and that's great for a while but you can't grow you can take one or two people on but you can't invest in the business properly you know just about paying everyone's salaries and that's in the the end of the day you know you can't innovate you can't create growth you can't invest in you know cad or anything like that you just work with what you've got 
and eventually I think you end up you know those those quick and easy projects disappear and you end up in a in a realm where you're just doing the same old same old and if you're not careful you'll end up doing kitchen extensions before you know it then but we evolved out of that and the next level up if you like is that you have time-based practices so after about three years we found we'd evolved because we'd actually managed to start getting quite a few little public sector projects but they were still small and they were for contractors and so the margins were quite tight and so we were turning over a lot and lots of projects particularly in education and so we suddenly had this workforce of about 20 staff um, turning over a huge amount of work but it was quite stressful yes we had money to sort of invest in the business but still margins were probably like we were making like profits of like eight percent and stuff like that it wasn't it wasn't brilliant still so you still you can only grow as a time-based business by growing right you've got to keep growing there's no other way around it so most people fail when actually the worst starts running out so if you don't get to that the top of the tree quickly and become one of the big national practices so you've got deep pockets and deep reserves and then you can manage those two percent and those three percent profit margins on jobs and things um, then you know you're going to crash and burn at some point and I think that's where we were kind of coming to about I don't know about four years ago about 2019 we were getting sick of the sick of the kind of grind if you like we didn't like the, didn't particularly like who we were working with we didn't like you know kind of like the sort of stress and the, the mentality of it and, and the fact is you just stop caring you just kind of just kind of just keep things moving you know keep yeah. keep feeding the machine you giving up uh, no I wasn't thinking of giving up I was just asking myself why I got myself into that position in the first place <laughs> you know and I don't and I think everybody has to go through you know nobody goes on a, a, a you know a linear straight up trajectory do they they don't no one no one climbs the mountain gets to the top and are really successful and then it's perfect I mean we hear these stories but the reality is they come with a lot of pain you know and they always talk about you know like Americans always talk about entrepreneurs need to you know you have to like a bankrupt three times or something before you yeah. succeed I don't know how they do that because once you bankrupt you're bankrupt you know <laughs> can't be a director after that so it's a bit flippant but I think you struggle you know you've got to go through the struggles and that one for us was actually realizing unfortunately we realized where we were at um, me and Mark had a long conversation about where do we want to be where do we want to go and we actually got a lady in who sort of did a bit of a deep dive into the company like did a sort of you know who are we and, the, and she presented it to us and said this is who you are and we're like oh my god I don't want to be that sort of thing it's horrible you know that, that's us she says, I, that's not us it's just that is exactly what you are and she was really into it and she goes great you know I've done you, I, you can stay focused on that trajectory for the rest of your life and you do well and we were like I don't want to be that so we kind of sat down and we almost used that report as a benchmark to say that's not success for us that isn't success that is like kind of like where we want to be as far away from this as we possibly can over the next few years so we decided that quality was the key how do we get to that like sort of that El Dorado if you like where you know people are people are employing you because they like you because you produce quality work and because you've got a good reputation and you've got integrity and all these kind of things that we kind of know we've got inside us but we just don't feel like anybody else kind of appreciates us for that kind of thing and it, it was a really 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 honest conversation we had to have and we thought right okay we've got to get rid of all our clients 
we've got to get rid of people, you know, the team that we've got, are they the right team for us? Possibly not. We probably need to start bringing in people who align with what our vision is. What's our vision? We didn't have one. So we had to sit down and we created this vision, which I've just talked to you about now, which was like how we can sort of create, sort of began with empathy. So we talked about social infrastructure and how can we create empathy, integrity and innovation. They were the three key words that we came up with. And the empathy was about creating influence, becoming an influencer, becoming aligning with people actually who cared about what we valued. And we talked about what our values are. You know, who are those people? Find them, befriend them, try to sort of start to work with them. Start coming up, being proactive, come up with the solutions for them like the Bootle Strand and, and many others that we've come up with where we've actually gone to them and sort of planted the seed, the ideas, you know, kind of thing. Go really upstream. Don't go to them and say, what do you want? We can do that. Go to them, get to know them, understand their needs and then go, I have an idea, I can solve your problems, you know. And that's how we work. So we work quite far upstream now. We work a lot in those early stage naught one pieces of work where we kind of create the vision, the objectives, the outcomes, you know, for the project really, really on, get really close to the client. And we've got, we set ourselves objectives, like make sure we kind of like keep all these clients aligned with us, make sure they keep coming back to us. How do we do that? We get good staff. We get good processes in place. We build that trust. We build that sort of, that integrity, if you like, within the business. And so we kind of looked at people, process, projects, you know, so, so working backwards in the projects, we need good processes, we need good people. And so we kind of, and so I had to think carefully about like, even how to employ people. I had to think, actually, when you're a startup, you tend to employ people who are a bit like you because you see yourself in them. And you think, ah, oh, that's great. And then you think, fantastic, they're going to be like me, and they're not. They, they are their own people in reality. Yeah. Um, but they're also, they're probably... You know, like I'm a, I, I can work with blank sheets of paper. I'm not very good at being led. I'm good at leading. So um, then you find out you've just created, you've just had a load of leaders that can't be led. And it's you know, you're looking back at you, and it's like it's like that scene being John Malkovich when John, you know, they, don't know if you know that film where he's like looking, look, John Malkovich is in a restaurant, and everybody else's face in the restaurant is John Malkovich as well. His sense of mad. And I thought that's not. So we kind of got, we put processes in place that actually distancing ourselves from that sort of like aligning with people who were like us and actually we've created a business now which has got such a diversity of people in the office, uh, you know, age, sex, gender, all these kind of, you know, um, sorry, um, everything basically. And, you know, that has actually created a more balanced model it just feels normal in here now you know and everyone seems to be getting along and everyone's focused and then we kind of opened up the business we got people invested in it so we got this we, we we're trying to move to be um to become an employee-owned company in five years like you said at the start so part of that is to get our b corp certification so that validates everything we've done so far um we are, we've got, like I say, great clients, great supply chain, great people, but then we've got to get people, so it's going to be employee-owned, we've got to get them invested. So we have now do an open book process within the business, so everyone knows exactly how much money the business makes, where, it, where, the, where we put the money, what, you know, how much money is in each project, how do we drive profitability in each project, and we have a Monday morning, we have a resourcing 
meeting where everyone sees who's doing what and why and kind of like we look at all the numbers every every month every week sorry thing make sure everyone's kind of doing okay if there are any bottlenecks we'll help each other out so we don't kind of get siloed in our own projects we're all kind of working across each other's projects and you know the reward for that for the first few years we went uh, we'll, we'll, we'll profit share and obviously we didn't make any money for the first couple of years we're going through covid it was hell <laughs> we were skint and so you know you can, people were still but they stuck with us and they're going yeah I believe it when I see it so about a year or so ago we started like building um, a sort of we actually get to, good news everyone we've made a profit so everyone gets a share of the profits and that's been phenomenal you know I mean as a you know they can start to understand they're getting much what that did was the focus they almost like doubled down yeah. on that commercial awareness they've got the quality they've got the skills but so many architects don't have the commercial awareness or it's hidden from view and when they see that and they get invested in that and they take ownership of it and that becomes part of the process the the productivity the turnover and the quality of the work and also weirdly the, the relationships with the clients everything starts to fall into place and we've gone from I don't know, 450,000 or something during the first year of COVID, which was a struggle. So last year we turned over 980, so we're 20 grand short of a million with nine fee earnings, eight fee earnings stuff. Wow. Um, this year we're up to 10 fee earnings staff and we're, we're on 1.2 million at the moment for this year. Um, we're about to say, we're, we're just started to look at taking on three more members of staff now, kind of thing, so build it, but we're building it slowly. We're staying disciplined to the what works, staying focused, sticking to our vision, keep getting the basics right. That's how we've kind of succeeded, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, just maybe on that, just for my benefit there, is if you're recruiting staff and you say that it's a, we're going for B Corp mm. certification, we do profit share, is that something when you speak to people that they're instantly interested in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I think people are looking for a values-based life uh, work experience these days. So, you know, people talk about, you know, it, it's not about just getting a job, it's getting a job that matters to them. So if you can find people who align with you and you're saying, well, I'm doing B Corp, you know, we're an ethical business, we're sustainable. Next year we're bringing in carbon zero calculators into the office and stuff like that to actually manage all the carbon and all. So we'll be net zero carbon, we'll be you know, employee owned, B Corp, all these kind of things align with people's values and they want to be part of that. And that interests them. Not just working for the man anymore, working for something that identifies with their values is really, really important. So yeah, I'd say values, there's a values-based angle to, to work these days, I think, which is really important. And I can imagine the benefits for being employee owned and share, um, sharing the profits is people are going to work harder naturally yeah yeah absolutely I mean that's it like I, yeah like I said they're much more in they're much more invested and the idea is that we it, when we do go employee owned which ultimately is, is is an exit strategy for most practices most you know business owners like myself and Mark at the moment that we leave the practice in a strong position self-sustainable I mean we'd still be involved but to actually then if we're going to share the rest of the business with everyone else they need to be invested in it and understand how it works and get it really and get it and be able to just pick up the band and run with it when it's taking care of itself as well 
So we're we're not we're not looking for, you know, that person who's the ultimate salesman or you know that person who can just drive in work. We're looking for people who like align with our values, align with our customers' values, and that means that we can step away and they our customers go to them as much as us and they are they know that you know there's a few guys who've had a go at running their own business and stuff like that and they realize how difficult it is to start up the infrastructure's there for them to thrive and go to the next level yeah 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 i mean have you <clears throat> had any thoughts on people getting to these practices i know you ha- you're not quite there yet with mm. employee ownership but um, if should people want to leave, is it is it easy to get out of um, of the practice? It's a good question. I honestly don't know. We're not at that point. We're actually just focusing at the moment on getting the conditions right to make it employee earned. So the the legal aspects of it we haven't really explored yet. Um, you know, it goes into a trust and all that kind of thing, and you know that that's that's a conversation for another day. But when that conversation starts, all these guys will be involved in it. So they'll be able to see and understand the implications of what's involved, you know, at that particular stage. No, I love what you, I love what you were saying there about the exit strategy, succession planning, open book. That is something that so many practices really uh, don't do. And if maybe we could talk about, you know, that traditional practice model of um, why people are not doing that anymore, borrowing huge amounts of money to invest in a in a, in a practice, yeah. why, why do you think why do you think that model is no longer viable? Because I think life is too expensive these days. I mean, you know, it's no, it's mortgages. Mortgages are huge amount of proportion of somebody's income these days. It's not like it was like thirty years ago when it might have been, you know, your parents' mortgage might have been twenty percent of their income, for example. Now it's well over fifty percent of people's sort of monthly incomes and stuff like that. There is, we've got a different culture now. We've, we've, we've moved into this sort of culture of borrowing and, you know, sort of enhancing our life and, you know, everything's sort of kind of leased and hired and borrowed and things like that. And, and in that context, we don't really have a huge amount of assets that we can call our own as much as perhaps your parents did. And so, government, uh, sorry, banks are unwilling to, like, lend, you know, people loans for partnership partnership investment so and and actually a lot of people aren't willing to take on that level of debt either because they've got a huge amount of debt already so so the idea of people just coming in and buying into the partnerships these days I think I think I think there's a lot of people who would like to but I just don't think they're in that position to be able to and it's not their fault it's just the nature of the fact house prices are huge life gets in the way I mean look at the you know how much it costs to have kits these days compared to what it used to you can't just put them out on the street and like <laughs> let them survive on their own anymore for, for the day, can you? No. So, you know. Very true. Very true. Maybe if we can switch the conversation to um, something close to my heart is um, your um, Moorside uh, nuclear, oh, yeah. nuclear project, which you, you entered a competition with the RIBA and for a visitor centre mm. to this new nuclear facility that is was cancelled but uh, nuclear's coming back. I just wondered how, if you can talk about that whole experience and what you think as well about these RIBA competitions. Um, yeah, and also maybe if you can, I'm really interested in how you approach the design of that, that facility. Mm. Yeah, so I'm a bit ambivalent to architecture competitions, I must admit. and. Um, 
I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with them, if I'm honest. Uh, the very first thing I did when I started K2 is I entered a competition for the first time. And actually, we got shortlisted, right? So we got shortlisted and we thought, amazing, this is fantastic. And we went through the whole process. And we, as, as so many young people did, I think especially younger architects at a certain age, I think, you know, there's an aspiration to enter competitions and win them and stuff like that. And when you get shortlisted for a competition at that age, my God, you're going to work hard to kind of win it and stuff like that. And we didn't. But we must have, we, you know, oh, yeah, I think we were offered £2,000 by the competition organisers to, to develop up the scheme. I think I must have spent ten, <laughs> you know, straight away. And I think that's just the nature of, of that kind of hubris and optimism that kind of comes with kind of competitions and stuff like that like they're a huge exciting thing and you know I think we entered a couple of others and we've had mixed mixed results but Moorside came along um, it was a little bit of a fluke we entered it we put in a scheme they quite liked it we were surprised they quite liked it I mean we weren't sure pretty groundbreaking it was pretty groundbreaking but actually when we went to the next stage we thought really hard about it again and we actually how can we make this really chime? You know, as this go, we'd learn, we'd become experienced at dealing with judges and stuff like that. And we had to listen. One thing you have to do is listen to judges. You can't just stick to your guns and think you've got the best idea going. And we thought, okay, well, the, the head of the Lake District National Park's going to be there. The head of New Gen's going to be there. We had uh, Sir Terry Farrell was judging, kind of thing. And, um, so anyway, we kind of thought, well, okay, let's think about the Lake District. What's the Lake District about? It's about Wordsworth. It's about, you know, sort of the romantic period and landscape painting and all that kind of thing. So we kind of, and I know Turner's nothing to do with landscape, but we had this idea of kind of creating these Turner-esque kind of images that sort of gave you a, a feeling of the project. And this is the interesting bit. We moved away from the idea of a, creating a definitive idea to giving a feeling of idea, you know, something people could emotionally connect with, and that was the key to it. And we went into the we went into the presentation and we presented, and we thought we'd done really badly. Actually, didn't think we'd done very well. First of all, uh, the room was dark, and it was like there was you could only see silhouettes of people. And I thought, oh, I think I'll I think I'll just chew the fat with Terry Farrell. So I turned to this guy, and I started talking to him about him, and I said, uh, I'm really really uh, you know big fan of yours back in the day and all that kind of thing and he was like really are you and stuff like that I said yeah 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 and I loved you I loved that you know quirkiness and your TVAM buildings and all that kind of and he went alright oh, thanks anyway the lights went on at the end it wasn't Terry Farrell it was somebody else oh no so I thought oh well that was a disaster <laughs> anyway we won the project we won the project we weren't allowed to tell anybody we'd won it so it wasn't allowed to go out what was that well, it was because it was on an NDA. Ah, right. Right, at the time, NewGen wanted to take ownership of the announcement. And so we had to patiently wait and patiently wait. And we were, in the meantime, we were, it's quite random, because where you're sitting now, we were sitting having conversations with legal teams in New York who were representing Westinghouse, who were going to actually be the delivery engine for the project. The week we actually signed on the dotted line, Westinghouse went into receivership. So the whole project just fell like a pack of cards around, and so it didn't happen, unfortunately. And I know New Gen went around looking for 
you know, alternative partners and all that kind of thing, but it just literally had no more legs. And then basically six months later, I think the, the RIBA announced the competition winner, but it was almost like a footnote. It almost lost its momentum. It was almost like a pointless competition. We were so close to becoming the biggest thing in the Northwest at that point. You know, the, the yeah. rumours that were going around, you know, people told them, oh, they've got this project and how they've managed to get that. I said, well, we didn't. That you know, must have been always the bright shattering, Jason. You know, <laughs> shattering not to um, have capitalised on uh, on that on that project after winning that. Uh, you know, against uh, I can't remember exactly who else entered, but there were big know. names in there. There were some very big names yeah. in there as well. We ended up we ended up teaming up. They built a really good relationship out of that with um, Ryan Hall up in. Um, Edinburgh, yeah. obviously, I mean, I think have they won the short, should Sterling Prize twice in a row, I think. I think they might have. I was either the anyway, really great bunch of guys, but we actually, they won another project, we built a really good working relationship up with them, and it was really nice. Again, that built, helped us grow confidence as well, because they said to us once, um, one of the directors go, you know what, I do collaborations with people all the time, Kevin, and uh, he said, oh, we, we say the collaborations, but they're not, they're just tapping into our skills. You know, bigger practices. He says, "You know what? I genuinely feel like I'm collaborating with you. This is good." And actually, I thought at the time, "This is this is where I started to understand that, you know, this is where we've gone wrong with architecture. Is that delivering a product? It's we're not delivering. We, we, it's, it's all about creating relationships and emotional value and kind of creating spaces people love. You've got to be able to connect with them. You've got to be able to 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 feel and." you know, mirror the way they do and stuff like that. And that's a really exciting piece of architecture. It's what we go into architecture in the first place to do, isn't it? Oh, it is. And we rapidly forget and we shouldn't. And, yeah, getting to that issue of value, you know, why do you believe architects often undervalue themselves? I think it's, uh, I think it's fairly uh, rife in the industry. Yeah. Um, I've been doing this a long time. So I've, I've seen the industry change. So when I was 16, it was, it was 1989, it was back end of 1989, there were still these old school architects wandering around, you know, the ones that you always see in the obituary section of the uh, RIVA journal or whatever, who, who seemed to be like small gods. Yeah. Um, I just think they were great leaders. And I think we've, what we've done is we've actually, we've become kind of obsessed with our own processes and our own the idea of being an architect as a designer of great things but we've forgotten that actually you need to take people on that journey with you you know you're one part of that puzzle and that's one thing I've kind of come back to over in, in my career is that you know coming full circle on that journey is you need we, we delegated or abdicated responsibility for a lot of our skill sets to you know project managers they went around 20 years ago you know, for example, so they run the program. They run. The, they they've got an enormous amount of influence with clients at the moment, sort of thing. So, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I don't particularly want to be like you know herding cats, but you know what? We're good at it. We're good at the vision. We're good at the kind of you know the value side of that kind of design and stuff like that. So that's why we sort of that's why we go so far upstream now when we start to kind of build those relationships or start building those stories, start to show people that we've got vision. And then we carry that vision through the project. So when we kind of move through all the different cycles, you know, we're one minute we're with the client and then a lot of people hate it because it might be a design and build project and they're suddenly innovated to the contraction. You're no longer allowed to speak to the client again. Well, it's fine. We split the team up into two. 
you know, we have a team that works for the contractor, but we kind of stay client side and we kind of become advisors. You know, and we're not getting in the way. We're not kind of being some sort of Machiavellian politics to get what we want. We're just trying to make sure that everyone is staying aligned to what the, the true spirit of what we started in the beginning. So that's really, really important. So we should be better leaders, you know, massively. That's important, being a leader. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I've got two final questions for you. The first one is, what is the future for K2 Architects? Good question. We're continuing to grow. It's been a successful couple of years. I think we're on the right track. Like I say, we're going to turn into, in the next five years, hopefully in about a year's time, well, six months' time, hopefully, we'll be B Corp. Certified, we've got 140 points on our first iteration. We need 80 to pass. Wow. So we're well on our way on that one. We just got it's just a long bureaucratic process that we've got to go through, and we're, we're, we're well set up for that. Employee ownership in five years' time, continue to grow. I want to establish K2's, uh, K2's sort of value proposition as actually like one of the strongest in, you know, definitely in the Northwest. I think we're now, we're getting real momentum. You know, our first iteration of projects is now starting to, starting to um, go to site, be built, you know, there's next generation, like the Boogle Strand and stuff like that. Hitting awards, you know, it's a totally we've got them. Um, Wardle Academy that we kind of uh, worked quite closely with a, a good friend of ours um, who sadly passed away recently. But it kind of like all of these projects, and now we're starting to win the awards, we're starting to get the recognition. We're back, and yes, we were like that a few years. You know, some people would say to us, you know, oh, you're back where you were five years ago. I said, no, we're not, we're completely different now. You know, we understand it, we get it now. We didn't get it back then. Yeah. You know, we know where we're going. We've got a vision for ourselves. And I'm going to stick to it and make sure these guys carry that forward. And my last question for you, it's a big question, but hmm. it's what are your hopes for the future of the profession? I think I've covered it. I think, I think it's about going back to understanding who you are, right? and why you actually entered this profession in the first place is because, you know, architecture is a humanity. It's about taking an interest in people and communities and lifestyles and all those kind of things. We've got a huge role to play. We play our cards right. You know, reinventing our towns, which are now rapidly decorporatizing again. You know, they're going to come back and there's going to be a whole different generation of things happening, you know, in about, even in, as I would have said this like, maybe 10 years ago but it's happening quicker and quicker all the time things are changing massively and you think about the world used to be like before uh, the high street you know like the, the one my grand used to take me around sort of like when I was a little kid to try and wear me out and stuff and she used to go down the high street and all these family businesses were there you know the famous ones even the department stores you know sort of Grace Brothers at the time and stuff and she'd go in these stores and they all used to know her name, you know, say hello, the torturer, and you know, all that sort of, the wonderful sound of hearing your own name, sort of thing. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously the corporates came along, and also I forgot to say as well, the, the, the businesses would actually be in buildings that were probably owned by the businesses, you know, that would be their pension plan, that would be their succession plan, all that kind of thing. That was the, the equity in the business. And then all of that was sort of given away to the corporates when they all started moving in in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that. And 
that was fine because they were, you know, everyone was okay with that. I didn't really notice what was happening because they were getting stuff quicker, cheaper, faster than ever before, right? So that was good. But everyone stopped forgetting your name. Everyone, you know, everyone became a 16-year-old shop assistant, you know, on a Saturday, and no one quite knew what was going on. And you know, you had to start taking care of yourself in the shop. Again, that's fine, but the internet's taken it over. You know, so the corporates have now been usurped. So they've moved out. All those buildings that they were in were owned by, you know, bought out back in the 80s by hedge funds. You know, there's a lot of places of takes out court, for example, Lord Street, beautiful Victorian Street, full of empty properties. Nobody knows who owns them because they're all in hedge funds around the world, you know, equity funds and stuff like that. But they're slowly being offloaded because they have no value to those people anymore and they don't want to work with businesses that can maybe start up and only want a three-year lease or something like that. So they're slowly, slowly being bought back by the community. So you can see a future where, you know, towns are back in their own ownership again at the moment. And I think architects have got a valuable role to play in that sort of redefining what that future is, that social infrastructure. Because it's going to be some of the same. Hopefully we'll get get back to that place where everyone kind of knew a name when you walked into the shop. That would be wonderful. But there'll be a different, it'll be a different offer and I don't know what it is yet. But, and that's what we're exploring. You know, that nuanced kind of approach to what the future looks like. That's quite cool, and that's the future. That is cool, and I uh, just want to say, Kevin, you know, thank you for being on the second series of the Brock Architect podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jason. Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. Okay.